Welcome back to the podcast, and you're going to enjoy this episode. Pastor Jessica Coulter is a co-pastor in Ohio with her husband. They planted um, another campus, so they're at a multi-campus church, and they planted uh, a new campus two years ago. They also, at the same time, were in the midst of international adoption, right? Yeah, who does that to themselves? Well, I don't know. When God just tells you to do it, you do it. And so she shares her journey of international adoption plus planning the church. So if you know someone who's thinking about international adoption, this would be a great episode for them to share this. We're on Google, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and you can find us online. This is her story.life if you want to listen online. Um, and I will include, uh, I think it's all God's children international is the, um, the ministry that they use for adoption. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, and then she talks about her journey, um, being called to ministry, being a woman in ministry. And one of the things that stood out, which you'll hear is that she didn't find you know, she didn't really bump up against that uh, woman clergy ceiling. So that just wasn't her experience. She had a very positive or fairly positive experience when it comes to gender uh, related issues in ministry. And, you know, there's a temptation if you're, if you're someone who is really, you know, hit your head on that ceiling, um, there's a temptation for us to just want to check out and say, I can't relate. But I want you to hear it from a different perspective and I want you to be encouraged that there are pockets in our, you know, in our country that uh, people are experiencing, you know, growth. The needle is moving in that area and wherever you are right now, wherever you're serving, you're making a difference where you're serving and your experience is helping those who are coming behind you and we can just be excited and cheering one another on, uh, especially when we hear stories like this, uh, to know that, you know, we're making a difference and men and women sitting at the table together, growing the kingdom, expanding the boundaries, um, to transform this world, uh, for his good and holy purposes. At the end of the day, that is what it's all about. So enjoy the episode. better stories instead of complaining about it right what if we right. just start telling the stories and really flood the airwaves with something different i think it's been four years maybe and how long since you guys actually launched two years this october now you were in north carolina right south carolina yeah mm-hmm for, I think it was six months. Okay. Mark had a teaching position down there that we quickly realized was not going to be something we did for a long time. No. So I just didn't look for anything. Um, and then that's when we got the call or the interview. The pastor said, if you are 1% interested, email us back. And Mark was like, maybe it might be 1%. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think we're probably supposed to lean into this. So. 
So, so where, why'd you go to Ohio first? Was it specifically to plant? Oh yeah. So, so after Michigan, we went to South Carolina and then in, Mark got a, the teaching position there. Cause we thought, well, if we're going to go wherever we want, um, my parents were down there and there was the beach. And so we were like, let's just go there. And then, um, he was like in an inner city school. Um, it was kind of chaotic all the time. And he was a little, the stats of the school, like when he looked them, they were a little skewed because they had like a magnet program within the school. So everything looked a little bit, it was a little bit more intense than he realized. So that's when, so we, we went to, from Michigan to South Carolina, then to Ohio. So Ohio called us to come. I'm originally from Ohio and we got the call to like to interview at this church here. And so that's when we moved back up. So you interview, so the church you planted, are you like another campus or are you completely different? Campus. So we were at, so it was a church in Piqua um, that wanted to go multi-site and they were actually hiring for a few different things. Um, they're looking, I think they were looking for an executive pastor and some different stuff. And then they got our name and um, Mark's like, I'd be interested in doing something new, like a multi-site, like I'd be interested in starting something new. And so we were there, I think it was two or three years. We worked at that campus. I did their family ministry. Mark had it led an on-site venue slash did connections. And then when everything lined up, then we launched the town over and launched the Troy campus. So. So that's been two years since you launched and in the middle of launching you were adapting yes they were like two dreams that were running parallel tracks for two years honestly and then they both came to fruition at the same time which seemed crazy except we'd been in prayer over these two dreams that we felt like god had totally called us to and so we're like, okay, well, you're kind of in charge of this. So we're just going to follow your, follow you and say, okay, I guess we're doing both of these at the exact same time. We actually pushed back the launch of the campus by at least a month, I think it was, because we were not even going to be in the, the country. Um, right. So I don't, we don't recommend it, but it all turned out okay. So your two dreams were what? What? One was to launch? Mm -hmm. To know. adopt and to launch a campus. Yep. And talk a little bit about your adoption journey and how that kind of came about. Like, like when did this kind of start rising up in you? Hey, we want to adopt. And then, like, how did you decide we want to do international adoption versus yeah. uh, domestic? So I felt called to adoption when I was in sixth grade, honestly. And that never went away. I saw a movie and it had displaced children in it. And I just remember having this very strong conviction that that was not okay. And as long as I had anywhere decent to live, um, that I would open my home to kids. And so I felt called to grow a family through adoption from the very beginning. And then, and that, like I said, that never, that never changed. I felt that conviction the whole time. And then Mark, um, my husband went on a mission trip to Haiti and they visited an orphanage and he was, I don't even, I mean, grown adult at this point, but, and he, that's when he felt that he also wanted to adopt and that was his first choice. So it was great. This was before either one of us were married and to each other. And uh, we both kind of went into our marriage with that calling and wanting to adopt. So started a long time ago. We started exploring it a few years after we got married in Michigan, actually 
went to a few classes about all the different ways you can adopt foster to adoption because we didn't have a plan there was we didn't go into it saying it needs to be international needs to be this or that we just knew we were going to adopt so we took the courses we took infant adoption domestic international foster to adopt and at that point we thought we had wanted to do foster to adopt and we realized the time that that can take that you need to be able to have for doctors and psych appointments and court cases and we were both working full-time and we thought we probably can't do this so then we started looking into infant which we never thought we would do um, and so it was just a journey after a while we realized we weren't going to be in michigan by the time that all played out we wouldn't still be there and so we paused um, and then when we moved to ohio for this position to launch the campus we started opening those doors again and we looked into the infant adoption and a few organizations they hadn't just they just hadn't placed many kids that year um and it was honestly a god thing because i heard about all god's children international which is who we went through two different places i was at children's pastors conference and a woman spoke there and mentioned it that she had worked with them and then i had seen it in a magazine and then at a separate time my husband discovered them on facebook somehow oh. and so i remember it was all within the same kind of time and we're like you know what let's just go with them <laughs> like it was very like this keeps coming up we we're not sure where to go next so let's just go with this so we started that process started researching applied um, and they were contacting us and basically at that point they have a list of countries that they work with and there's different each country has different requirements for who can adopt and who can't and what those parameters are how long the wait time is what kind of kids are up for adoption and so we just worked through the list um figured out which ones matched which ones in colombia um south america worked for our age because some places if you're too old or too young they won't let you adopt in their country Interesting. how long you've been married what your level of education is if you have kids in the home already all sorts of things factor into their decision and so we matched up with colombia and that's what we went with so just kind of fell in our laps i guess <laughs> Yeah, I, and I was, that's what I was going to ask: is where, what country, did, where did your kids, where your kids born? And someone thought that it was maybe Haiti, but yeah. the mission trip that Mark went on was to Haiti. We were actually both there, and we looked into it. But it's very difficult to adopt out of Haiti. It can be a long process, and we were too impatient for that. And you adopted siblings, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah. biological siblings, a boy and a girl, and they were four and two years old so talk about when you found out like did you choose your kids or did they call you and say we have some kids for you yes so you fill out a lot of paperwork like there's literally a social worker in the organization that partners with you and has a phone call with you every week and emails because there's absolutely no way that you could keep track of everything that you have to fill out and do for this process and so we basically would just keep doing the next step that they would tell us to do and you put together like a dossier and you have um, a, a photo album of you and interview questions. And then they kind of go through the board at the orphanage that they worked with. They go through and they decide who might be good matches. Then they send you some information and say, would you be open to this? Are you interested? And you say yes or no. And even after you say yes, it might not happen. And so we actually had one time where they called us about three kids our paperwork wasn't finalized yet but they said we feel like you might be a good match would you be interested and we prayed about it and said yes and then that those kids ended up going to a family in france 
because their paperwork finished first. And so the whole process, and again, it's very different country to country. Um, so we had one, but then the second, you, and they might bring a few different kids to you and you might, you never know, you might say like, I'm not comfortable with this or this makes me nervous. But for us, um, I mean, when I saw the, their picture, I was done. <laughs> <laughs> right? It was done, yeah. So, and at that point, I think the whole process for us from start to finish took about two years. Wow. So then you flew there to get them? Yes. So it's interesting. Again, depends. Every situation is different. We did not meet them ahead of time. Some countries you'll fly over a few times or you'll different things. We got to um, like Skype with them one time and then it was everything. Paperwork was lined up and it was time to go. And so that was about it. So when we flew over there, the next day, I believe, is when we got the kids. And from that point on, they were in our care. And that was the very first time we'd ever met them. And they had met us, minus that one Skype video. Aww. How, how, how did that first meet go? It was good. They were, they were shy. Um, it's so interesting when I think about their personalities now compared to that first day. Um, they bring you in, so you bring clothes for them, and so I can't remember when we sent them, but they came in wearing all the little clothes that we had brought them with their little backpacks, and oh, they were so cute. Um, we just, you, they just kind of leave the room, and you get to hang out with them for a little bit, and we had stickers and bubbles and just hung out, and they're very quiet. Um, our daughter, she didn't usually smile, which is funny if you see her today, but yeah. they were very subdued. Um, but they were, they were okay. It was, it's like when you meet somebody for the first time, when you meet strangers and you start to get to know them. Right. Uh, well, the four-year-old had been talking. Two-year-old, was she talking much? No. And our four-year-old son, he talked nonstop in Spanish, which we were not that fluent in. <laughs> so <laughs> that was interesting. The first, um, probably even six months, honestly, because they tell you like it, the language barrier isn't a huge deal. You'll be surprised how quickly they pick it up. And that's true to some degree within a year, he wasn't really even speaking much Spanish unless you like were asking him to, or trying to get him to do that. But those first six months, I mean, he was so expressive and would tell stories and would have very specific things he'd want. I mean, he's an extrovert, social extrovert. Yeah. And he gets so frustrated because you're like, I don't know what you're saying, kid. Um, and we'd, we'd have translator apps and stuff. But yeah, he was, still is a, such a talker. So that was a, that took some adjusting. And now they're very active. Oh, yes. I'm surprised. I don't know if I even remember most of the last two years <laughs> between those two things going on. Um, but yeah, it's incredible what even just a year, though, what a year does. Um, and the huge difference that you can see in a child's life just from having that attention and care. Yeah. How long have you had them now? I mean, how Two long years. have you been? Two years. Okay. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it was right when you right before you launched. And and you you kept their names. Yes. I think most places do. So again, they were four and two, and they'd been they'd gone by their names their whole lives. So I wasn't going to change it. We switched around their middle name and their first name because in that culture they go. Well, I don't know if everybody, but our kids did. They went by their middle names. And so we just flip-flopped them so that, you know, in school, they wouldn't have to say, oh, I go by. <laughs> right. Now you're officially launched and you have your kids. 
And so what, it, what, what are your roles now at the church now that you're launched? So Mark and I co-pastor. He, I tend to lean into family ministry. That's most of my background and that's where the need is. At some point I could see us maybe sharing the platform more often and doing that. But um, I oversee kids and teens, some, a lot of the communication and social stuff, work with those teams. Mark does like communication or connections and most of the primary is speaking and all of the executive stuff. So we just kind of share and honestly, like the, this church helped raise our kids. There's a core group <laughs> that you, you'd walk through because Sunday was such a big day. Right. And, uh, you'd walk through and be like, has anyone seen Dylan? <laughs> because, and they go, oh, so-and-so has them. So it's been a team effort for sure. But it's fun. I, I had times where I'd say, is this okay? And I thought, this is exactly what God, it's hard right now, but this is exactly what God called us to. Um, and my kids are just going to learn how to launch a church and be in a family at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now you guys just added a virtual campus pastor position, didn't you? Yes. Which, I mean, I know who the person is, but yeah, <laughs> I just want to talk about how, well, yeah how you decided and then what does that even look like mm -hmm. so some of that we're still learning honestly but yeah we brought on pastor lindsey murphy um in the midst of this covid thing depending on when you're listening covid is still happening <laughs> but it was yeah, right you know in march and just realizing we needed to pivot and that no matter how long this lasted the majority of our church for a while was probably going to be online and even if they weren't everyone that we were trying to reach is online and so just recognizing we had thought we probably were going to lean into maybe a youth leader or a discipleship pastor and when this happened it kind of pushed forward the need to lean into that role instead and having worked with Lindsay, um it she's she's in alabama now right <laughs> when we brought her on she was in michigan so it's just a crazy new way to do ministry that we don't even live in the same state but having worked together in person for a season made it feel pretty natural because we already knew each other. So she has been invaluable as far as just even learning the learning curve and the research and taking the time to lean in and discover what other places are doing and go to seminars and coming to us and sharing, here's what I'm discovering. Because that wasn't like a position description we had ready to go and we had been looking for. Times changed and we realized this is what we need right now. Right. It's been good. She hosts, um, she hosts during the online streaming service. I think our biggest thing that we're trying to lean into is to say, just because your service is streaming online doesn't mean that's an online church. It means you're streaming a service. And so leaning into creating online communities and building relationships online. And if they're local, hopefully that they would come when they're comfortable, part of the on-site community, but that if they're not, they can be in different states and there can still be community there. So still learning what all that looks like, but. Yeah, that's a good that's a good distinction between streaming online versus being an online church because mm -hmm. they're not or, or an online community because they're not necessarily the same. And and so then she, she's creating a community that will also be online that's not necessarily it's it's beyond just the Sunday morning streaming, right? Is that what you're saying? So she we've got some life groups that are going to be via Zoom. Um, she's created a community, again, responding to the current 
events happening of on Mondays, she talks to a community of not, I guess, homeschooling or virtually schooling parents and leaning into that and building community through that. There are people I know that have been joining and watching and plugging into that that do not attend church anywhere else, um, but maybe already had a relationship with Lindsay or, or feel connected to that topic. And so a community is growing. We've always found that mission usually builds around a common denominator, whether it's your relational network, um, you all go to the same school or you live in the same neighborhood or you all love to craft, like whether it's a, it's a network or a neighborhood, people tend to grow community in that way. And so she's tapping into this felt need of virtual schooling that a lot of parents find themselves in for the first time. And so building a community around that. And she has some teachers that are speaking into that, which is useful. So. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like coming in and being like guest speakers and stuff. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. I think this is definitely going to be a, like, this is going to be a whole new position, whatever you want to call it, genre for the church community um, going forward. Like even once COVID is done, we're going to see this need for it. Yes. Yeah. We're going back on site here. Well, our adults have been, our teens started, and we're going to add kids in October. But even then, we're going to have parallel all of the online opportunities um, because everybody, I think we were about 400 before COVID and which was straining us a bit because there's some rapid growth and now you've got on site you can only have so many people and so obviously no matter where people ended up or where they're at in their faith journey or their relationship with church they're obviously all not going to be here on site and so there are new people that we can connect with online people have always said I think that online now is like your front door so that's still but it's even more so now because a lot of people aren't comfortable to come on site it's a little stressful. It's a little extra work we weren't really expecting, <laughs> but it's been good. It just, it just made us do something probably that we would have eventually done, but had to do it a lot faster. So. So you guys were like 16 months into your church plant when COVID hit. Seems about right. It's been six oh. months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so you got COVID and then you have racial tensions. <laughs> So having children that are not Caucasian mm -hmm. in your family and in your community, and I'm not really sure geographically where Troy is in, in Ohio, but how, how, is, how is all the racial tension kind of affecting, influencing, like, and shaping how you're both raising your kids and protecting your kids? And so fairly new to it, obviously only two years in got a lot of learning to do but it's it's just different I'd say the biggest takeaway you know being pastors and having that sort of a platform and then having black children and all of that you have to kind of gauge what's an appropriate way to use your platform and what comes from your own personal motivation and so navigating that and again being fairly new and feeling like I don't really know what is always the right thing to say or do or how to approach it. But I do know without a doubt that just the word personal, like I was praying through it and I just remember thinking it has to be personal. Mark and I didn't go, I mean, we adopted from South America. So we didn't even know that we would have black babies. <laughs> I mean, right. like, so you just, 
we didn't, that wasn't like something we were like looking for or expecting. Um, we were open to whatever God gave us. And I do think it's been very interesting. There are things that I now see that I never would have seen before and you just simply can't. And so and everybody's not going to be the parents to black kids, but you can be more intentional about genuine diversity in your community, because if it's not personal, it doesn't matter whatever you post on Facebook or whatever your stance is, or if you go march in a rally or whatever, how, wherever you fall into that, whether you're for or against things, if it's not personal, and I think this applies to any um, dividing issue, if you don't have friends who are black or people you work with that are black or that are or any other diverse topic that you wanna choose from, I think it's very difficult to try to have a stance and an opinion um, and so it got very personal to me. I've always, you know, I would always think that that like racial injustice is wrong, but until you have a black son, I mean, you just can't even, I had no clue. <laughs> I had no clue. Um, I remember the first time with, is it Ahmaud Arbery? I want to make sure I said it right. Um, I was a wreck that week. Just experiencing emotion because for the first time, I, I always thought these things were, were horrible, but this time I was the mom to a black son and that's just a completely different viewpoint. And so, um, and I have friends who well-meaning, I remember the first friend who reached out and said, are you okay? This is probably a hard week. And just having someone that would recognize that because again, if you don't have much diversity in your community, it wouldn't even occur to you that that would be a hard week for me. Um, or reaching out to a friend to say like, I'm just, my head's a mess right now. I don't even know how to process this. And I'm saying like, oh yeah, I bet that would be hard. And then moving on. And I'm like, no, I don't think like, right. Of course they can't know. You can't, I didn't know. I didn't know until a couple of years ago. And even then, um, Mark and I have talked about how to handle it. I remember my, I was a wreck that week because I realized for the first time that currently our kids are little. So they just, people just see them as cute kids. But when my son's a teenager or he's a grown man, it's going to be a little bit different. And when they're not constantly with their white mom and dad, they're going to probably experience things that they wouldn't if we were there. And that's what made me the most like just sick to my stomach of realizing they're not going to experience this most of the time when I'm around. And so I don't even get to model for them how to respond in those situations. I can just tell them but they're not going to see me do it like you would if you had black parents. And so that when it happens to you, you kind of just naturally know how to respond. I was like, the first time they experience this, they're probably going to be alone. And I was just, I can't think about it too much even now um, because it's just, it makes me sick. And I just pray that by the time he's older, the world might be a little bit kinder in that regard. Yeah. So. Parenting is hard. It is hard no matter what. And then you add on these levels of adoption and racial tensions. And I'm like, I don't have a clue. <laughs> right. Swimming in the dark. Like I imagine, like everybody else, right? You, like all the women, you daydream about your wedding. You daydream about when you have kids. And blah, blah. So, of course, you knew you wanted to adopt when you were 16 and having this, you know, imaginary, oh, this is what it's going to be like when I adopt. <laughs> like how did and then reality comes right so how did those two compare it's a good question I actually when I did envision it I did think international 
Um, I love to travel. That could simply be why, because there's obviously a lot of kids within the United States that could, that need that as well. And maybe someday we will look into that as well. But so that did, I did tell my grandma one time that I was going to have black babies because I thought they were the most beautiful. So I think that's interesting because I do have the most beautiful black babies. So that happened as well. Um, I think you just simply can't prepare. I think the thing that I didn't know about, and I, there's nothing to really be done about it, is that there is, no matter what their story is, and that's something that you, you know, try to protect because it's their story, but it, the fact that they're adopted alone means there's trauma in their background. Mm -hmm. um, and some kids have more of it or less, but there's trauma irregardless. And so that changes the way a kiddo's brain wires when they're young. I mean, when you think about, what did they say, like up to two is some of the most important times um, for a child as they develop. And my kids were four and two. And so there are just the everyday moments that you just don't know is, does this come from their history or is this just a normal temper tantrum that a child throws? And, and always having that doubt in the back of your mind of how do I respond to this situation? It's pretty, it stresses your mind out a good bit because that doesn't go away. But I also don't want that to always be the definition of their story and their every moment. And so that has been something that I wasn't quite prepared for. Um, otherwise, quite frankly, we've been pretty blessed. I mean, in, in spite of everything, as crazy as it was, our kids transitioned beautifully. And I mean, it's always going to be a little bit harder, but so are a lot of things because we're playing catch up. We're playing catch up from a starting at four and two, but they're getting there. So honestly, yeah, things you, I was more prepared for the worst because you never know, like kids can have attachment disorders and they could have um, just different traumas and I prayed like every day as we started the adoption process that God would just heal and renew their minds and um, that they would become everything. I'm going to get all emotional, that they would become everything that he originally intended them to be and that they would always know their identity is in him. And I do think, um, I think he answered those prayers because I, like I said, our transition and our bonding as a family was, was, has been so smooth. I think God can do those things. And I think he did. So, but that's probably been the biggest, um, continues to be like, how do I handle this situation? Because we're still in a transition, but. You think you're done or you think there's more? Depends on what day you ask us and who you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> My husband feels, and I don't disagree. He feels that there are more kids without there out there that do not have homes. And therefore, you know, what choice do we have? Um, I don't disagree. I'm just a little bit more protective of protecting our home and making sure we're ready for that big change. <laughs> I think he's, we're usually on the same page. We just communicate very differently. So um, I'm like, we're just starting to come up for air. Could you give it a second? <laughs> but yeah, I could see, I could see us um, doing it again. Who knows what that'll look like. But I mean, without a doubt, if I feel God giving me the little tap on the shoulder, it's a done deal. It has been the best choice. We fit it all again. Don't recommend doing it all. And I mean, I strapped Zalmate to my back while we would do setup <laughs> in one of those baby carriers. And she was two, but she like just wanted to be with me. And so I was like, all right, sister, we got to set up church today. You're just coming with me. So 
what's been one of your biggest wins in this last, in, well, in 2020? <laughs> we'll just, you get, we'll give you the whole year to pick because <laughs> you're going to need the whole year. Big wins. Oh, it feels like it's such a roller coaster, obviously. Um, so we actually opened, we relocated. So our, our church opened up in a rec center, which was a wonderful partnership, but we outgrew it pretty quickly. And so then we renovated in a shopping center, which was a learning process that my husband or I would care to do again. <laughs> That's not our expertise. Um, but luckily there are people that came around us on that. So we opened in this building in, oh, was it January or February? I think it was February. I think it got pushed back to February and then COVID happened in March. Yeah. So, um, so when was coming, it was, was being in the building and reaching new families. And then obviously we shut down, but I think, um, we have been finding, we've been connecting with a lot of de-churched and unchurched people in the last several months. And so just trying to be good stewards of that. Um, I think shutting church didn't shut down. That's the big lie, I would say, is because obviously the church is not your building on Sunday morning. Um, but not gathering in the building, I think, really forced some people to take a hard look at how serious they were about their faith and about church. And so, you know, you've seen some that maybe have um, not made that a priority. And then you see some other new people that maybe in this time of COVID, where things slowed down, they realized they were missing something. And so I, I guess that has just been a win. That's not a, we did it win, but that's a win that we've seen where God's been working in people's lives and bringing them. We're just trying to get people connected when you're not supposed to be gathering in groups, trying to keep people connected. Cause we're just seeing a lot of new faces um, and they're hungry for God. I would assume, I don't know that they can articulate that yet, but so that's been a win when you would think like, oh, like you were 400 and now how many people are even left? We've never been real big, honestly, on numbers. 400 was, we were growing faster than we could keep up. So in some ways you can be like, that's great. And we're like, yeah, it was great. <laughs> we're really tired. We need more staff. But, um, and then to shut down and you're not, but anyway, like that's just been a win is to see, honestly, some people just taking their faith a lot more seriously and then others discovering um, that they needed God. And so just, that's been a huge win the last couple of months when we reopened on site. And a lot of that came from some of that online experience. They were checking us out online or they had neighbors. We always said when we opened that the reason that we were able to reach people was because of the ground game. And those were those personal invites, those relational connections. Most people came because they knew somebody in the church and that makes a huge difference. And so even now, a lot of those that are coming on site are because somebody kept inviting them and they didn't give up on that. They weren't pushy, but they we were open the door. And then when we went online and we had to up our online game, they started checking us out there. And now <laughs> it's been like two years for some of these people that they were inviting. They're willing to come, they're ready to come on site. So that's been a, that's been a win when you feel like you can't, control everything or you can't plan that's been stressful I'm sure you're like can you even plan what you're going to do next month like right. can you build momentum right now because you plan something and then it shuts down or but again people just taking that seriously and inviting others um, and God working in their life I think in some ways that's been a silver lining or a way that God made something in to, for good where people were quiet enough to maybe sense him and hear that call and that nudge and 
they were brave enough to show up to church. So I'd say that's been the biggest win of 2020 and that we're still doing this. I still have a passion for ministry. We still love ministry and that, um, honestly, I don't know if you, I don't know the stats, but like, we'll talk about a lot of pastors. It's hard, right? It's been hard. Still, still excited to get to do this. And, um, that's why it's a calling. It's a reason they call it, they say it's a calling because <laughs> some days you're like, no, thank you. Yeah. Can I return this, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've been, now you grew up in the church, right? Yes. Yeah. So when did you realize you had a call to ministry, to ordained ministry, I specifically, I should say? I mean, obviously we all have a call. Yes, I was in college. I wanted to travel, do journalism, and um, I ended up at Olivet Nazarene University. I guess this is probably why, because I looked at other colleges. I, I went to a Nazarene church, but I wasn't like, I have to, I know some people are like, I go to a Nazarene, like that's just the natural progression of things. I think I just heard about it from maybe another friend that was like older and that had gone there. So I checked it out. And um, again, was going to do communication. Well, I had been volunteering in our children's ministry um, at my church, which was healthy and was a good, good example of what church can look like. So that's always helpful. And so I'd been serving there. And I remember as I was a high schooler, people saying things to me like, have you ever thought about this? And I was like, no, I just like to do it. Um, for fun, I took a class my freshman year of college in children's ministry. And the professor was like, thought I was an upperclassman that was already in like a ministry, a theology degree major or whatever. And I was like, shouldn't you know that? I'm like, no, I'm not. But so it was just other people kind of recognizing that at first. Um, and then it's one thing, again, it's one thing for people to tell you, you should do this or you're good at this. That still doesn't mean it's a call. And so finally I went to I studied abroad in Uganda for a semester of college and literally it was while I was in Uganda that I felt God confirm like, well, you're good at this because this is what I've created you to do. <laughs> and um, I always tease them like, I had to go to Africa to get away from all of you loud people to hear God <laughs> saying like, yes. Or, or maybe he's like, I have been trying to get all these people to explain to you. <laughs> um, but I, it, yeah, so it was when I was, was in Africa and Felt it confirmed, so then I came back and changed my major, and I absolutely love it. Sometimes Mark and I will recommend to people if they feel a call to ministry to get an undergrad degree in something else, just because you can always get a master's, right, or you can go through the course of study, um, take the theology classes, and I'd probably still recommend that, but for me at that time, what I was supposed to do was to go back and switch my major, um, and so I got a pastoral ministry degree. Yeah, I try to recommend anybody who's young coming up, I'm like, get a get a degree in something that you can pay the bills yes in case you end up having to be bivocational yes know. absolutely exactly that's what mark and i are like the, we're who knows if we're right but we're pretty certain like the future of the church is going to probably be bivocational smaller footprints multi-site um and so yeah we totally agree so i i don't follow that um <laughs> my own advice <laughs> But that is what we tell other people. Like you can still have a, you can still be a pastor. You can still be in ministry. You don't have to, I would probably, it's actually probably better if anybody's looking to go into it. I took, I, I got a master's of organizational leadership and I just remember I gained so much more from that because I was already like working 
And so I feel like if you feel called to ministry, you can get a different degree and then take your courses of study while you're practicing ministry. And I just think it's usually so much more meaningful. Right. Uh, I would ask for advice. What advice do you have for women who have a call on, or really anybody? Good question. I, I started out in youth ministry, actually. So I got the children's degree, Pastor Orger, but I started out in youth ministry. And there were not a lot of female youth pastors. And I wasn't like an athletic female youth pastor. So I very strongly felt those first years of nothing on purpose, but like when the youth pastors would go do a pickup game of basketball, I'm like, cool. <laughs> or you walk into, and, and being a young leader, even at the time you walk into a, an event and it's a bunch of older men and you're just already off. You're just trying to make up conversation. And so um, advice I would have is I do think it's getting better. I'm seeing more and more females in leadership. I'm proud. That's one of the biggest things about our denomination is that the history of it, while maybe it's, you don't always see it, the history is that it supports female leaders. Going into it, just have humility and don't think you have to like make up for anything um, and recognize that when men and women are at the table together and you're working together, that it's just going to be better. That honestly, this is not what you asked about, but that's honestly part of the reason I started looking at my husband was because we would sit, um, he's a big dude. He's like six, four, big guy. I always say he's got a secret service face because he's real serious. And so that man never has to try to make space for himself in a room or at the table, right? And he's an introvert. So he thinks, so a lot of times when he speaks, people usually listen because he doesn't speak very often. So he's just got that presence where I'm like, bubbly and loud and social and so that can be overlooked sometimes <laughs> and that was one thing um, when we did youth ministry together I never had to fight for space um, even when we like irritated each other um, when we would sit around a table with other leaders and talk like he always made that like if nobody else at that table was making space for me or my opinion he would say well this was actually they would assume sometimes that it was his idea or that he where they'd start with him. He's like, this is actually Jess's lead. And he kept deferring. And so I guess my advice to ladies would be, if you find that guy, I think you should marry him. <laughs> but um, so honestly, I had a, just, I had a few years where I was young and it, you were the only one, but the church I was at supported, I mean, they were very supportive. I didn't sense a whole lot of that where I felt out of place or I was a girl, so I couldn't do this or that. Um, and then I got to work with, obviously ended up being my husband, a guy that really respected my opinion. And so um, I felt the most awkward usually when I'd be in a gathering of church leaders. That's when it became the most apparent that you were the odd man out. Or, you know, when they say pastors and your wives. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, for me, I just got over it. Now, that's not, that's not something I want to make a big deal out of. Eventually, you just do good work and you're obedient to what God's calling you to do. And he fights, I think he just fights those battles for you. And so you can get distracted by that. But again, I think I was, well, I was lucky though. I got to be in environments where I was tr treated pretty well in that regard. I remember when I got ordained, no, my husband, when he got ordained, 
I got ordained first, actually. So then when he got ordained, and now I had to go through it as a spouse. <laughs> so I was like, I have to do this again. And they drilled us quite a bit on the, some of those questions about like how Mark would handle it when people would, you know, would say things or make comments. He was just like, it's a non-issue. But I remember they're saying like, you're going to have problems. And, you know, the most that I've, I mean, I had so many, like even still, and it depends on, it usually depends on age or depends on their history. And nobody has ever meant anything unkind. I have, I am, I've lucked out. I think I, the first job I got was at a church where they had had a female executive pastor. That even the church that we're at now that we launched out of, they've had women speaking you know, preaching and on their platform. So that wasn't out of the ordinary. Like I said, there's an executive, female executive pastor at another church I worked at that would preach. And here, even the co-pastoring, because that's not usual. Um, You don't often have male and female co-pastors. You could see it's been, it's been cool to see again, how over time people kind of got used to that idea. And when they reference us, they reference both of us or like you both can talk about it or to see. And so finding that space. So I don't know, I guess I've been protected in that regard. It's not been too, I haven't had too many experiences. I'm sure you're a lead female pastor. It might be a little bit different. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's been a little bit easier planting actually than, uh, I mean, I've had a few weird weirdness, you know, um, people stumble in from the, church down the street and they're like they don't they never heard of the Nazarenes and they're like what you know they're fine when I say good morning and then when I get up to preach they're like oh this is weird but you know starting from the ground up you kind of you're laying the foundation and the DNA so yeah I I try not to I used to get really I would say all of that to say (laughs) told you I was an extrovert outward processor I just one day had to stop trying to fight that battle and thinking that I had to correct or stand up for myself. We were looking at a church that did not believe women um, should be in leadership, and yet they asked, um, they had talked to us about a position there, um, but of course my husband would have to be the real pastor. We're just like, we, now that does, that feels dishonest to what God's called us to do, and what we right? So that was a time we were like, we think God's doing a lot of great things in that church, and he is moving, and we probably would have liked to work with some of those people, but obviously that would be denying, you know, you'd feel like you're constantly hitting your head against the ceiling. Like, eh, you can only lead so far. You can only, right. That's probably the only time we've really drawn the line. Yeah. I guess there are times where, like you said, you pick your battles and it, there is, there is a settling the issue in your own spirit that helps you then to say, I, I need to spend this energy on just doing ministry. Yeah, like you said, you have to just come to terms with your own identity and knowing your own calling. And then there's bigger things, bigger things to to worry about. At least that's my that's my journey. I don't think that's that's just been my journey. So uh so what are you doing today? This is our this is our ministry Friday tonight. Like we always have date night on Thursday because we take Friday as our Sabbath. So we usually we'll get takeout. I worked on third I worked today, but then Tonight we'll have takeout date night and welcome the weekend. We have a kindergartner now though, so he has to go to school on Friday. So that's really kind of messing with my uh, <laughs> messing with my fun. <laughs>